You're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, everyone. It's Steph, Buildup's Executive Portfolio Liaison. This week on the Nonprofit Buildup, we are continuing with part two of an information pack session led by Buildup's CEO and Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, RPA General Counsel, A. Nicole Campbell, and moderated by RPA Senior Vice President and Corporate Secretary, Renee Caraby-White. This presentation was originally recorded as a webinar in March 2022. TCLF serves as outsourced general counsel to brave nonprofits and philanthropies, and RPA is one of our brave clients. You can jump back to part one of the conversation to learn more about navigating grants, supporting advocacy to C3 and C4 organizations. But with that, let's dive into the second part of Nick's presentation, moderated by Brene, where Nick continues to discuss guidance on how to support and structure grants to projects and programs containing advocacy form successful partnerships with organizations engaged in advocacy, engage in grant-making to for-profit and non-profit organizations engaged in advocacy, and so much more. So let's talk about the statutory exceptions that come up. And these are pulled out because these are exceptions that exist within the code. So these are exceptions that Congress has said, these are real exceptions to lobbying and Whenever you engage in these kinds of activities, you will not be seen as being engaged in these activities. I also want to point out that in addition to these statutory exceptions and to respond to that question, Renee, about like, what can you do? There are a lot of things, a lot of activities that you can lead, manage and do. What we want to make sure is that you know what lobbying entails so that when you know, like, okay, this is what I can't do, or these are the parameters for lobbying. Now you know that anything outside of those parameters is going to be fine in terms of the lobbying rules, right? So we need to understand what lobbying is to then get creative and say, okay, well, how do we still advocate and do this in a good way without you know, either having this count as lobbying or not wanting to engage in lobbying at all? So these exceptions, there are five, and we'll talk about four in detail, the first four. So that's nonpartisan analysis and research, technical assistance, discussions of broad social issues, self-defense, and jointly funded program. Now, there's an asterisk there because this is something that is reserved for private foundations and government bodies. And so what essentially happens is you can come up with a new or existing program. You're asking for funding to be allocated to that program and used. A lot of negotiation that happens in this instance, right? So you are, you're bringing in your lawyers most likely and negotiating for this program, what it looks like, what it's set up for, the funding, and all of those communications are completely fine and they're pulled out of being seen as the private foundation engaged in lobbying. And so we can turn to nonpartisan analysis and research. And so this is one that comes up quite a bit. I think that what People refer to it as quite frequently as the white paper exception. And essentially what you have to do here to have it be not considered lobbying is that you present a, quote, sufficiently full and fair exposition of the facts to permit the public to form an independent opinion or a conclusion. So it is a very 
thorough research paper where you have really talked about here are the facts that are at play, here are the considerations that we want you to know. You don't have to present both sides of the issue, right? But it does have to be a thorough, well-researched piece of work. And it needs to be fact-based and rational. What you can't do within that report or paper is include a direct call to action, you know, like in closing, go out and, you know, you should actually vote yes on this thing or vote no, right? You can't include that as part of it. You can't distribute it only to people who are interested in one side of the issue. So it has to be broad distribution, putting it up on your website, sending it out on your newsletter, that kind of thing. We get questions about, well, we know how many people come to our website. We know we have Google Analytics, for example, and we know that only 15 people visit our website. Is that broad enough? And it doesn't matter. It's that you are putting it in a media that has the potential of having a broad reach. And so it's about last, making it available. It's about the availability. Right. It's not secret. That's exactly it's right. That's exactly right. And it doesn't matter how many people actually show up or how many subscribers you have on your newsletter. And then the last is that you can express a view on specific legislation, but just remember that you can't include that direct call to action, right? That explicit statement, like go out and do this. And once you have that, then you would fall into that exception. And one thing I'll say about the nonpartisan analysis and research exception is that pamphlets don't really get us there. And so we'll see that sometimes where, again, they're very thoughtful, well-written pamphlets, but they're just too short, too brief to really fall into that exception. Great. And then the next we wanted to hit on was technical assistance and then discussions of broad social issues. So with there's, technical wait, ass- I just want to stop one second. There's yes. a question about the prior category. What if the analysis includes recommendations for changes to legislation? Yes. That, that, that is it still falls fine. within the exception. Yes. Okay, great. Thanks. Yes. And with the technical assistance, this is a response to a written request that comes from a legislative committee or a subcommittee, some other governmental body that's asking you to speak on pending legislation, to give your thoughts. And when you come in and have that conversation, you can provide analysis, you could provide recommendations, you can really talk about all of the things you would like to in regards to that specific legislation or specific legislative proposal. What we like to see is that this request come on letterhead, come from or be signed by the person who's really leading that committee or subcommittee or the body that's taking the vote, and that it's in writing, right? We don't, sometimes you'll get calls, (laughs) for example, and that's not, even if they say the exact same thing over the phone, it's not going to count. We want to make sure that it is written. Would it be appropriate or inappropriate to ask someone to ask you for that technical assistance? So, yes, that is a really good question. When someone calls you on the phone, which, you know, happens a lot, depending on the kind of work you do, you may actually have members of committees or subcommittees or legislative bodies who are taking votes saying, hey, I know that you're an expert in this area, you've done a lot of work in this area, we'd love to have you, you know, share your thoughts on this particular bill, for example, can you, you know, get on a call next week with a group of us and have that conversation. And at that point, you would say, no, I'm not able to participate in that conversation. But if you would like me to come and speak with your group, then, you know, we would love it to, you know, be on written, be on letterhead, be in writing and have allow me to 
say, you know, whatever it is I'd like to say, recommendations, analysis, the thing that they're asking you for on the call. So it's very common that that kind of conversation that happens. And so do not be afraid to request it. It's not illegal or it's not anything that is unethical. And in fact, you should, because otherwise, if you say, sure, I'll have the call, that's when you actually get into lobbying. The other is discussions of broad social issues. And so sometimes I always think like, well, why is this an exception? Because, you know, we've said that if we're not talking about legislation, then, you know, if we're not referring to reflecting a view on specific legislation, then we are not engaged with lobbying. But I think because there are so many issues that might be the subject of pending legislation, folks have questions. And just for clarity, it's in the code that you can talk about economic issues, problems that are coming up, anything that even relates to pending legislation, as long as you don't address the specific legislation, and that will be seen as an exception to lobbying. And then the last one is self-defense, correct? Yes, this is self-defense. It hasn't come up that frequently, but essentially Congress gives charitable organizations the right to defend their existence, their powers and duties, their tasks and status. So if a pending bill is coming up where a charity feels that its powers and duties will be impacted negatively or are limited some way, that you have the ability to then go to a member of a legislative body and say, we don't want this to be passed. We want it to be repealed. We want it to be changed, that kind of thing, without it having to be seen as lobbying. Importantly, it's non-transferable. So you can then, you know, fund a grantee, for example, to go do this on your behalf. And it doesn't apply to grassroots lobbying. So you can't you know, again, go to the general public and say, look at this law, this is awful, write to your senator and say, you know, no on this particular legislation. Okay. So we talked about the Section H election at the very beginning, and we just wanted to highlight it here, that if you want clarity, quote unquote, like in terms of numbers, this is how much I can actually spend on lobbying expenditures, and here's what's considered lobbying, here's what's not, then taking the Section H election is the way to do that. So you file a form with the IRS. Some um, is pretty easy. And once you file it, you are, you have that, you've taken the H election. If you decide later on that you don't want to take the H election, you can revoke it by filing that same form. There's limits on the total amount of expenditures that you can make. And depending on your budget, the largest amount that you can spend is a million, right? For the largest organization or the largest budget that they have out there. There's also an upper limit for grassroots lobbying. So reaching out to the general public and asking them to then contact members of the legislative body, 25%. Mm-hmm. But this is a way to get you to have real clarity and certainty on this is the amount that I'm spending on lobbying. And I know that I'm within the limits of what I can and cannot do. The no substantial part test, as we mentioned, if you don't take the H election, you have to follow the no substantial part test. And this applies again to public charities. Private foundations do not have this option because private foundations can't lobby at all. And so larger public charities may choose the no substantial part test instead of the H election because they might think I get larger amounts, right? More than a million where I feel like I can safely lobby and it's still seen as an insubstantial part of our overall activities. It might be riskier to take that no substantial part test. So we want to point that out again with the H election, you have a number. 
this is the amount that you can lobby. With the no substantial part test, you're sort of saying, okay, I'm doing a risk management analysis where I think that I should be seen as not engaging in a substantial amount of lobbying. So with respect to what gets counted as a lobbying expense, it's not just the communication, right? That's right. That's right. And so one of the things that comes up is like, well, what actually is lobbying? So I know what it is. I know what it isn't, but what's actually included? And it's more than just the act of the communication that results. It's all of the preparation that goes into it, the distribution, the different parts, the drafting, the reviewing, all of the things that made that communication possible should be seen as a lobbying expenditure. So it's not enough, for example, for a private foundation to look at a budget and say, you know, you're looking through the proposal, you're reading like, oh, wow, there's going to be some lobbying activities or there'll be work done. And you get to the budget and you see that the budget does not line up with the amount of lobbying that's been described in the proposal. And you see that it's really just focused on the end result. There is no staff time that's being allocated to it. There's no overhead that's being allocated to producing that communication. And you want to make sure that you're asking questions so that you're clear on what exactly are lobbying expenditures. So thanks for that. I know that we have a lot of foundations, private foundations on the call today. So can you speak a little bit to what they can do and how they should be thinking about their grantees? Yeah. So we're getting now into grant making. So you talk about what lobbying is, what it isn't, what are the exceptions, and you know that private foundations cannot engage in lobbying and public charities can. So with all of that framework, you should be saying, well, how can I make a general support grant to a public charity that I know for a fact lobbies? And, you know, they lobby right up to the insubstantial part test line. How can I make that grant as a private foundation? There's a general safe harbor that the IRS has created for private foundations. And that safe harbor provides that you, the private foundation, can make a grant to a public charity as long as you don't earmark your funds to support specific activities of the grantee, right? So the general support proposal should not be requesting funding for specific projects. You, the public charity, can describe the different activities that you'll be engaged in. You can say, you know, we'll be doing this project that's lobbying, or we're hoping to pass, make sure that this bill or is, is passed. You can still talk about the different lobbying activities you'll be engaged in, but you really can't have the funding be earmarked to it or really be highlighting it in such a way like this is what we'll be doing with your funds because now we're getting into earmarking. You also then on the other side, you can't say, well, sure, listen, I've heard about this general support safe harbor. And so what we'll do is I'll make the general support grant to you. It's completely fine, but I need a report on that lobbying activity because that's really why I'm funding you. And I really need to find out how it's going in your calling and checking in on that specific activity. It blows the general support safe harbor and you want to make sure that you're not earmarking. And so this is the same thing for annual reports, annual reports about all of the activities of the organization, including the lobbying activities are what you want to see. And when you follow all of those rules, you will be able to provide a general support grant to public charities that engage in lobbying. So one question is about C3s and what they can do with respect to C4s. And I'm thinking about a C3 as a private foundation as well. The question is, can a C3 distribute a communication from a partnering C4 that includes a call to action 
as long as the C3 passes it on as an update from a partner, but doesn't themselves make a specific call to action in the distribution. Who, who are you passing? If you're passing, if you're... Let's C3, say it goes out in the newsletter. Foundation has right. a newsletter and they pass along a communication from someone, a C4 that they partner with. Yes. Okay. So if you're a C3 private foundation, that is an absolute prohibition because you're now, you're basically taking the C4s call to action. You're taking a lobbying activity and sending it out to your readers as a call to action. That's what's happening, right? Technically. And so as a private foundation, I would say absolutely not. As a public charity that might be doing it, you can engage in that activity because it's lobbying and you have the ability to engage in lobbying, but you want to make sure that you are tracking that expenditure. So it's not like, okay, well, I'm going to just include it. It's not really our call to action. So we're fine. The question is, what will the IRS do when they come in to examine your communications, your books, things like that? Will they see this as you furthering a lobbying act? And I would say yes, unless there's you know some other facts that we just don't know about. But as the facts is written, I would say that would be seen as, as lobbying. Okay. Now, I just want to back up. There are a couple of questions that came in that I want to make sure get covered. Does an H election need to be filed annually? No. Okay. File it one time. And this one, I think you just went over, but I'm going to ask it just to be sure. Do foundations need to have the grantee that engages in lobbying as an organization submit a project budget with lobbying separated out? Okay. So that's a really good segue, actually, into the project support conversation, which is we talked about how to make a general support grant, and now we're going to talk about how to make that project support grant. Let's say you're making a grant to support a project that doesn't contain lobbying, right? And that's the first bullet. In that instance, we just want to make sure that the line items are charitable and we're supporting charitable activity, right? Because there's no lobbying included, even if the organization itself lobbies. When you are supporting you, the private foundation, you're supporting a project that contains lobbying, right? Lobbying is in the budget. We ask for a bifurcated budget, right? And that bifurcated budget basically bifurcates the budget into two parts, lobbying and non-lobbying. And so when you have that bifurcated budget, and let's just use numbers, right? It's a $100 budget, $60 is in the non-lobbying category column, and then $40 is in the lobbying column. So there's $40 worth of lobbying expenditures over there. The private foundation can provide a grant up to the non-lobbying portion of that bifurcated budget. So up to $60 in that example, right? Can't provide 61, but can provide up to $60 within that budget and not be seen as airmarking the grant for lobbying. Now, you might say, well, how is this helpful? Like, what does this do for the private foundation? One, it allows a private foundation to fund a project that contains lobbying. And two, it allows the public charity in that case to, they, when they do the reporting, they don't have to say, this is how we spent your foundation funds. We spent it on this, we spent it on that. It is now you can just report back and say, here's how the project is going because you are in that project support safe harbor that many folks call it the project support rule, right? So you're in that safe harbor where you don't have to find out, well, actually, did you spend it on lobbying? Let me follow up on that because you have spent up to the non-lobbying portion of the budget. Okay. One thing we want to point out is 
you can't just rely on the grantee's description of an activity as not lobbying. If in the proposal, you're reading things that are making, you know, you're saying, well, is that actually lobbying? I don't say, or if they're describing it as education, but you're like, wait, you're talking to a member of a legislative body. You're going to be talking about this specific legislation. You've reflected it. You're going to be saying, you know, vote this way or that. How is that seen as education? You have the obligation to raise that with the grantee for clarification. So the back and forth that happens with grantees is very important because you want to make sure that all of the clarifications come back in and are saved within the grant record. It doesn't mean that you have to revise the proposal. You can do the back and forth via email, but you want to make sure that when you step into that project support rule, that you are stepping in saying, I believe I am clear on the activities that are lobbying, that are not lobbying, and this budget is now reflective of that non-lobbying and lobbying split. There's a question around the definition of project support. For example, if we provide a grant that is designated for early childhood with no other restrictions or guidance, would that count as project support? I think that it might depend on the organization, right? If all you do is early childhood, for example, then maybe you can take it as uh, general support. But I think in those instances, you want clarity right? You don't assume. You want to make sure that you are very clearly stepping into these, either the general support space or you're stepping into the project support space. And, you know, we, I know we have a lot of different names for grants, right? So it's capacity building, there is project support, there's program support, all these different names that we use. But in the IRS's eyes, in the internal revenue services eyes, there's only two types of grants. There is general support and there is project support. General support is unrestricted. So in that early childhood example, if you can use those funds for any purpose whatsoever, you know, as long as it's charitable, that's general. If there is any restriction, it should be used for capacity building. It should be used for project or for this particular program or for leadership, for example. That is a project in the eyes of the Internal Revenue Service. So here's a question that I think a lot of foundations may face. When it says that special reports on activities should not be requested, does that mean that if we have a two-year gen op grant, we cannot request an interim report after one year to trigger the final payment? No, you can. It's a good question. And you can request interim reports. But I think at some point, what I've seen, for example, is we're going to be requesting interim reports monthly. Right. Or we're requesting interim reports and you're tracking funding or you're tracking a particular program. The questions that are coming up are about a particular program. All of those facts tend to show that this is not a general support grant. This is not a grant where the grantee could have used the funds any way it would have liked, even though you have a real interest in one of their programs. But there's no restriction as to how they might otherwise use it. When you're constantly checking in, I think one, it raises questions around like, you know, we can get into like best grant making practices. And I think that's a longer conversation. But then from the legal perspective, we start to think, is this actually a general support grant where the grantee could have used this grant in any way it would have liked? If so, then why are we checking in so frequently? But if you're asking for just an interim report on an annual basis, I think that that is completely fine. So I know you have some information you want to share on the Lobbying Disclosure Act, but I'd like to get us to some of the hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to those. And for those of you who inquired, we will be sending out the slide deck afterward. And you can always feel free to send us questions in areas you'd like us to follow up on through future communications. Yes. 
So we have some hypos and I believe a poll will also come up. But just to read this out loud for everyone out there, we have the first hypo is the Torture Victims Protection Act of 2022, which Charity A supports, is currently pending in Congress. Staff from the charity have set up a series of meetings for victims to meet with staff of the relevant committees within Congress. Victims are going to share their experiences. They will not discuss TVRPA 22. Do we have lobbying? How did the vote break down? Okay. So we've got 78% of folks saying not lobbying and 22% saying lobbying. So I'd love to hear why the folks that think there is lobbying, like just someone pop into the chat as to why we think there's lobbying. And while we wait for that, maybe you could tell us what the right answer is. (laughs) So, you know, I think if it is as it's written, that victims are going to go in and share their experiences, they're not talking about TVRPA, right? We're not talking about legislation. And so it would... I would say it's not lobbying. Now, with that in mind, though, and this is why I wanted to see if someone would type into the chat, this is usually what happens in theory, right? Uh, Theoretically, this is what you want to have happen. Practically, what happens or what could happen is if you're sitting with the folks who are the decision makers, right, and they're asking about your experience, at one point, what if someone says, well, you know, this act is pending. How do you think that we should vote on that? Like, what do you think we should do? Have you trained the group of stakeholders that you're working with to answer appropriately to say, we really can't get into that, but if you'd like, you can send, you know, all of the things we've talked through to get us into the exceptions to lobbying, if it does veer into that is a question, but as it stands and as written, I would say it's not lobbying. So I think we have time for one more hypothetical. Let's go to hypo three. Okay. And you can go ahead and put up the poll now while we look at the question as well. Okay. A nonprofit employee makes the following statement. The Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act regulates the incarceration practices among juveniles, including deinstitutionalizing status offenders. Research shows that incarcerating low-risk offenders is related to higher recidivism rates. What is your view on this issue? Lobbying? And if you think it depends on some considerations, go ahead and put what you think those considerations are in the chat. Okay. So we have about 90% of folks saying that it's not lobbying and the remaining saying lobbying. And so we also have a couple of questions that are popping up in the chat, a few questions like, who are they talking to, right? Who are they talking to? And was there any additional language invoking a specific leaning on the issue? So do they just say this? Was there additional language before? What's the follow-up? And so, you know, I think those are all good questions, right? So if you're talking to a member of the general public, right, like where's the call to action, right? So I would say in that instance, it's not lobbying. If you're talking to a member of a legislative body, I think this is where you start to get into lots of questions around, okay, is it actually lobbying? And and those questions that have been raised in the chat, like what was said before was said after would come into play. Because on the one hand, you could say, I'm just making a statement and I'm actually trying to figure out your view. But if you see the first sentence is saying, this is what the act does. And the second says research shows that 
incarcerating low-risk offenders is related to higher recidivism rates, right? So have you now referred to, reflected of you? Those are the questions. And so I think like you, you have to do that analysis if you're talking to a member of a legislative body. And that concludes this two-part series. As we wrap up, if you're interested in partnering with a law firm that leverages a global network of experienced attorneys with decades of legal training and practical experience and focuses on social impact organizations to serve as outsourced general counsel and thought partners, then schedule a discovery call with the Campbell Law Firm today. The Campbell Law Firm works with brave nonprofits, philanthropists, ultra high net worth individuals and movements, offering high touch counsel to social impact entrepreneurs and organizations around the world. We would love to hear more about your brave mission to change the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.